Welcome to ContenderCast, a leadership conversation centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast for shining a light on bright ideas. And today we are talking aviation and we are talking about owning your own business in the aviation space and the growth in the business aviation space. And on the podcast today, I have got my new good friend, Janine Yanirelli. <laughs> I know I probably said it wrong, Janine. You got to straighten me out. But she is the founder and CEO of Paravion. So Janine, it is awesome having you on the podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I was super excited for this. I love the aviation space. I was just sharing with Janine that I, when I was growing up, I flew on many small private planes uh, and helicopters. My father was in the aviation space. I almost got my pilot's license when I was younger. And ever since, I've always debated kind of going back and jumping into the space. And Janine, you jumped in 21 years ago with your own business in the space. So talk to us about what Paravion is and what made you start the business? Well, uh, very simply put, Paravion is an aircraft brokerage firm. We specialize in assisting clients of all types, corporations, private individuals, some government work with the acquisition and sale, specifically a business jet aircraft. And I formed Paravion at a point in time that I felt that my learning and earning potential had been maxed out in the role that I currently or previously was in. Interesting. And thought, well, what are the options available to me if I want to stay in the aviation industry? And uh, they're kind of threefold. Go to work for someone else. Sure. Go to work for one of the manufacturers <laughs> or start your own business. <laughs> so you decided to start your own. So oh, why not take the riskiest of all paths? <laughs> right. But you're very type A, right? And you are a driver and you like to get things done. I mean, you're the top female representative selling and purchasing business aircraft internationally. I mean, that's unbelievable. So how do you go from, I'm going to start a business in the aviation space to actually getting it off the ground, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness I had a great foundation. I mean, I think this applies regardless of the industry that you're in, but you have to understand, uh, you have to have a platform. And that platform for me was working with an aircraft dealer who educated me to uh, the ins and outs of the trade itself. I had the opportunity to gather tremendous product knowledge. Now, of course, all of it is on the job, and a lot of it in the aviation industry remains on the job, short of formal training for either engineers or pilots. And uh, I was a great student. I knew nothing but how to learn and then apply what I learned and couple that with great intuition, gut instinct, or street smarts, as my former employer described it. I married the two well, which parlayed it all into success. But at the end of the day, you can never, ever not know enough and can never stop learning. And I think, as I said, when I reached that point where I had probably maxed out what I was going to learn in the current position that I held, I needed to take the next step. Sure. Well, I mean, the growth in business aviation in that space has been tremendous over the last I'm sure, 20 plus years, right? And so, absolutely. I mean, it's an amazing I, it, market. It, just, it astounds me when I look back over the course of my career and I look at entry level aircraft back in, oh, dare I say, 1984, <laughs> right. uh, versus what you can 
operate today or look at. And really, back in the day, there were only a couple options, and that was either whole ownership or charter. Got it. The market started getting fragmented by other entrepreneurs who came up with other means to provide access to this form of transportation. So not, our audience isn't going to be fully familiar with the whole aviation industry, which is why I love this topic. So talk about this specific segment and, and what changes you saw or you've seen over the time that you've been leading this business. Well, I think one of the biggest changes and, and the game changer in the industry was the introduction of the fractional share. Uh, you know, People had heard of timeshare prior to that, and an entrepreneur applied that concept to the business aircraft world and created a company. The first one was NetJets. Well, the first, let's say, well-branded one, because there were other people doing it on a much smaller scale around the world, and opened the door for people who, other, for whatever reason, could not consider whole ownership, but they could take an equity stake in an aircraft, a percentage share, if you will, and have access to private transportation on demand. That was huge. Now, for the OEMs, they loved it because it meant <laughs> uh, delivery and shipment of, of new course, aircraft. Of course. Especially to a growing business sector. And whereas I have heard over the years from people that have felt threatened by uh, the arrival of the fractional share, I fully welcome it because in a way it introduced so many people who might otherwise never have become familiar with aircraft, private aircraft transportation. And I personally draw many potential customers from fractional shares because once they get a taste of it and they come to understand how it operates, they also come to realize that I'd like to be in greater control of my own destiny. And there's only one way that happens. You have to own the asset. You have to own the aircraft, right. And so you talk about the fractional share programs and how they work today. Well, it, I don't think much has changed. And what they'll do is they'll buy a whole aircraft from the OEM. Of course, they're ordering fleets of aircraft. Sure, sure. And they'll divvy up the aircraft. Uh, and based on who the fractional share is, you may be able to procure... Uh, a share that's as small as one thirty second to if you wanted to, you could buy the whole aircraft, but that would make no sense. <laughs> right? I mean, economics would dictate that you're going to own your own airplane. Personally, I feel anyone who has 25% or more should be looking at whole ownership. It may not be exactly the same type of airplane, but the numbers start to play out a little bit better. Uh, so really, I don't think the scenario has changed. What you find among the players is they're starting to segment or, um, uh, how shall I say, differentiate themselves one from the other by the level of service and perhaps the product that they offer. Got it. And then so talk about the niche that you've built your business around. As you mentioned, some of your clients come out of a fractional share program, but talk about the types of clients you work with today and how they, how, how they come to find you and you find them. Well, by virtue of being in this business, again, I'm going to say a long time. <laughs> right. And having been very good at not just branding my company, but branding myself, if you will, and being out there, uh, not just in the aviation world, but a little bit of the public domain now, my name is easy to find. I think I Google well, so Absolutely. I've been told. And uh, I receive cold calls from people who say, I've considered the acquisition of an aircraft. Your name comes up. Uh, once we become friends, I start to ask them, just exactly how my name came up, whether <laughs> right, it was right. over a cocktail or was it via the internet, Googling <laughs> or sourcing me through some form or fashion, because obviously I also am measuring return on investment for our advertising dollars spent. Uh, but 
those in the fractional share, I would say it's the same way. It's a reference. It's a referral. It's sourcing me through a trade journal. Uh, But I, um, I actively prospect, I have to say. We utilize a database of registered aircraft owners. And if I followed a historical pattern, though all those patterns got thrown out the window come 2008, uh, we, we cold call and we ask people, what are their plans? And then there is a little bit of theory to the fact that if someone or a corporation has owned an airplane X amount of years, they're probably considering an upgrade if their business has grown. I mean, we're no strangers to researching uh, the news media and looking for financial data and stories that lead one to understand that either a company's fortunes are growing or conversely are waning, in which case that means an opportunity to go after an airplane for another client of ours. And, uh, you know, again, I come back to the product positioning, which also is branding, uh, key marketing elements of promoting my company and myself and staying relevant of course, no question. Well, you mentioned 2008 and, and, you, and what was different before that and after that, but talk about how that period of time impacted your business and then the overall industry for you guys and, and what you saw before and after. Was it, has it, are we been now back to where we were before or above or what's your, your take on that from an industry perspective? Well, I think we're all still trying to figure out what happened you know, or what just <laughs> happened. Right. But it was, I wouldn't call it pretty predictable, but leading up into 2008, the industry went through cycles, and those cycles would track, let's say, the performance of the S&P 500. It would also track the general economic uh, rise and fall, and the United States always led the rest of the world in terms of activity, meaning if we saw a rising market, you could see sales increasing in the United States, and if sales started to cool off or the number of inquiries, you knew that an economic downturn was coming. But how long did that generally last? Historically, 18 months, 24 maybe, and then we'd start to crawl out of it. And then we'd have two, three years of boom period of time where sales were great. 2008, like I said, take the roadmap and throw it out the window. First of all, you have a complete economic meltdown. Then you have uh, a pullback. And wisely so, thinking back to the day, to the conversations I had with core clients who said, you know, now is not the time to do anything, but all of us wanted, all of them wanted to know what is the value of their asset. Oh, I got it. I see. And, you know, that became in a way a, um, a new profit center for me in that I was always willing to help clients in understanding values, but when it became a consistent and a requirement, well, you know, it's a revenue stream when you're providing repeated appraisals or uh, market value assessments for an aircraft. And we really didn't know how long that would take, but the market was nothing like anything we'd seen through 2008. But towards um, some brave souls in 2009 recognized that aircraft values had been cut in half sure. in some cases, Hammered, that's and right. they jumped in. Yep. And I saw that again in 2010, and then I felt it was a period of bits and starts in terms of people buying and selling, driven mostly by the patterns of old, meaning their aircraft had reached a certain age. They are facing certain maintenance events that they know they would prefer to divest themselves of the asset rather than go blindly into that and incur whatever costs they were on an asset that was a declining value asset. (laughs) Right, right. So, but it wasn't consistent. 
it's and then people talk about different markets around the world. China, for example, was supposed to be a bright spot in an otherwise dismal economy, global economy. And perhaps it was for about 12 months and mostly enjoyed by the OEMs who uh, were successful in selling brand new aircraft. You know, there's a long road between placing an order sure. and taking delivery. And there's been a little bit of upset in between that period of time. That market went cold sure. right away. And I have stuck to uh, core principles, values, you know, and also when people flee certain markets in anticipation of a rising market elsewhere, I redoubled my efforts in the existing market because, you know, there's still some gold to be found in that mine. No question. And continue to build relationships. And I would say the next significant change started towards the end of 2017 and throughout the course of 2018 where we have seen buyers commit, meaning they recognize that if we're not at a floor, we're pretty close to one with most of the values for aircraft. Secondly, the fleet as a whole has aged, and there has not been enough new aircraft produced to fill the pipeline of what becomes pre-owned airplanes. Oh, got it. Okay. And I would say a vast majority of the buyers are people who have some experience in aviation, meaning their charter, fractional share. They've been watching values for a long period of time. The fleet's not getting younger. And if they want to find the aircraft that meets or checks all the boxes they need to check, they needed to jump in. And they did in a big way. And so we have some stabilization across the board. That, for me, is another, the biggest change that's happened in the last five years. Wow. Fascinating. And are certain markets hotter than others? Yes, I would definitely say so. And it's um, it's a bit mercurial, and I would say it's also cyclical. Now, that sounds a bit odd, but <laughs> I think from the start of my own career, which I'll trace back again a long time, I have seen that cyclical sort of pattern within a model of aircraft, particularly if you're in a segment that has two or three direct competitors. I mean, there's plenty more competitors today than there were 30 years ago in terms of model of the airplane. But really, two, three people get down to considering and then they focus in on one. If one of that hypothetical three is very active, the other two probably are not. Sure. And then you buy up all the quality inventory in that one model and nothing new is coming up for sale that is of interest, then buyers might start to consider the other model. Interesting. Well, brokers might steer potential buyers to the other model. And then you see a lot of activity within that model of aircraft. And I would say, whereas 2017 was the year of the small jet, I mean, there was tremendous activity in those short-range, smaller jet aircraft, newer production models. 2018 was the year of the super midsize hmm. and to some degree the large cabin, but very selective. As to what, and and yet I see that the benefits of what happened in 2017 in the small chat market have carried over into this calendar year. Wow, it's fascinating. Well, one of the other big parts of you know uh, owning aircraft, operating an aircraft business, are the people, right, and the people that support it. So your workforce. Talk about um, you know the importance of STEM and STEAM and and how that plays into the the overall um, uh, the overall industry. Well, more so than I think anyone imagined just five years ago. In fact, it's a couple years ago that I think there were several reports, mostly contained to the aviation industry of how there was going to be a severe pilot. And I'll add to that, 
mechanic or other specialist type uh, support staff for the aviation industry. And in mainstream press, you now see it broadcast more frequently about how there is a pilot shortage. And I guess people don't seem to understand how could that be? Well, <laughs> right. part of it is because Absolutely. the pipeline, the pipeline for personnel to mostly the airlines, not so much the business aviation world was the military. Correct. And in absence of training pilots in the hundreds, we no longer have enough entering into the marketplace coming out of the military career. For the enthusiasts, the general aviation enthusiasts, the path to full certification to pilot the type of aircraft that I sell is quite an expensive road to get there. So you give, really us, have to, give us a range. You don't have to be exact, but get, like, just to give oh, you know, our listeners well, a range. It would be really interesting. I mean, if you think of just getting your private pilot's license, which today is a ground school course and 40 hours of flying, and if you don't own an airplane, you're renting the plane and the instructor. Absolutely. I mean, so, uh, you know, at 325 an hour, you know, you're roughly looking at ten to $15,000. Right. And that's just to get your private pilot's license, license flying a Cessna or other type of small aircraft. Yeah. Right? And I mean, costs vary depending sure. on where you are and what you have access to, but that's a good uh, round order of magnitude to go by. And then there are the added certifications, which require that a pilot build time. And then at the end of the day, you have insurance, which factors in. And insurance will dictate to a certain degree who a company can employ to pilot a particular aircraft. So let's use 1,000 hours as a minimum, though you know some charter operators are hiring, maybe not with less total time accumulated, but less time in what we call type or particular sure, that type aircraft. Of aircraft. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's a long road before you're <laughs> going to become a pilot in command of a particular model of airplane. I, I mean, you could easily be pushing $100,000 or more for that sort of training. Sure. Unless you're hired on with a company that also helps facilitate that training. Uh, and that's why you read about people who are aspiring pilots taking jobs where they literally fly a single-engine airplane up and down the pipeline looking for leaks. Uh-huh. It's a means by which they can build time. Build their hours, sure. Build their hours, exactly that. And so that's one element of the shortage. And the other is the engineering side. And this is Janine's own personal perspective as to why we lack people who are entering into any of the technical fields that would support the aircraft is because our educational system throughout the United States has changed dramatically. I mean, even at the time that I was entering university, you were hearing the mantra that you got to go to college, got to go to college, got to get a four-year degree in order to get a good paying job. And then consequently, at the high school level, you have cuts where they eliminated technical schools or technical training, which was a big part of the community that I grew up in. You could either follow a traditional educational path that led to a four-year university, or you could take your core curriculum in the morning at high school and then go to technical school in the afternoon where sure. you would graduate sure. as a licensed you know, uh, automotive mechanic, uh, air conditioning, Absolutely. plumbing, other trade, trade. trade schools, yep. With the loss of that, I think you've lost another pipeline because today someone going for an automotive degree may say, hey, they're paying more in the aircraft industry right. and I'm going to recalculate. Go That's right. And even there are schools post your high school to attend, but 
someone's got to come up with the out-of-pocket expense in order to attend those schools. And I'm not sure we provide enough of an education at from early grade levels on up to the alternatives to a career that are available for young men and women. Hence, enter STEM, right? STEM is focused on encouraging young women because historically, they've not been told that these careers exist for them, whether let's go beyond technical training, you know, math, science, engineering, becoming a doctor. I mean, people want to argue the fact that, well, isn't this opportunity available both men and women? True. But for boys, it's almost a given and they're expected. And all the empirical data that exists, all the peer pressure that's out there, all the gender role playing is formulated on sending a young boy up to a path where they feel empowered to do everything. I can't say that that is the case for young girls. STEM is going to help contribute to filling those empty slots that are here and now in the aviation industry. And STEAM is the newer application of it where they don't sure. want people to forget that art the is arts still piece. an important no question. element of anyone's education. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, in fact, uh, the last couple of months I've been part of a program here in Georgia where it's really we've, we've really learned a lot about the trade schools and the technical schools that are growing in importance and, and have almost been I don't want to say left behind, but have had less focus and awareness. And um, they're great options for individuals as they're looking for a career. And there are certain fields where, I mean, there's such high demand. It's like, a, a, it's an excellent option. Exactly that. I mean, today you have airlines giving new pilots signing bonuses, paying incredible salaries that before never would have been realized if someone was looking to sign on with the airlines. And you know, business aviation is uh, challenged a little bit because the airlines are quick to hire and are in a position to really sweeten the pot almost immediately and help them build their hours. Whereas business aviation is really about building a career that personally, I think, offers greater opportunity, greater freedom, greater control of your destiny. No question. Wow. I love that. Um, you, you've been in this business or you've started and grown your business over the last 21 plus years. Um, you shared a couple of the lessons learned earlier. What would be two or three uh, that you'd highlight in terms of, of things you've learned over that time that you'd share with other entrepreneurs that are listening to our podcast? Well, I wish I had earlier on uh, thought, how do I phrase this? You know, hiring that I would have brought on support staff in greater numbers early on in my career because it would have reaped greater benefits. But in addition to that, I also had wished I had followed that old adage of quick, um, slow to hire, quick to fire. Right. (laughs) Because I found myself to be what I would call a nurturer Uh, and always hoping that... Trying to fix the problem, yeah. Yeah, try to fix the problem instead of realizing the problem was not necessarily my problem. Right. And the tools were presented and the options. And once you do everything else, you have to learn that this is just not a fit. Sure. And it's better for both parties to move on. No question, but not an easy task when it's your own business. No, no, not at all. And and I'd say that that is the lesson that I learned very late in my career and could have done better at earlier on and would have enjoyed it more. <laughs> I'd done sure. Wow. Um, what about one more? What about on the customer side? When you think about engaging your actual clients, 
what would be, you know, what's important about those relationships that really works for you and has helped you to grow? Well, I think staying in touch with them, and that would probably be problem number two, is finding the perfect <laughs> CRM program. Ah, there is, I can there, help there you. There is no one. perfect CRM program. No, there's not. <laughs> I mean, I have to tell you, I still do redundancy in terms of reminding me key clients. I write it on my <laughs> calendar, I put it in my Outlook, and right. I'll send myself a text. Uh, but staying in touch, and not just staying in touch with the clients that bring you the repeat business, but the ones that you do the one-time deal, but you know they really liked working with you, and all that really matters is you reach out to them periodically. Sure, stay in touch. And let them know that you're there. No question. No, it's a huge deal. People like to buy from people, right? At the end of the day, your business and others, it's a people business, even though there's a product on the other end. But uh, you know, people like to work with people that help them, that are um, good to work with and aren't, aren't salesy. And, and it, just all of the things that go into you know, relationship one-on-one that so many people forget. That's exactly it. And that is the way I train anyone who comes to work for me is that someone needs to like you first. If they like you, they're going to listen to you. If they'll listen to you, you get the opportunity to sell the company and the merits of working with this company. Because while the individual is very presentable, charismatic, informative, and helpful, you have to have the team behind you in order to complete the project. No question. Well, Janine, this is so great. Okay, so last but not least, share with our listening audience how they can engage with you. How do they connect with you? How can they learn more about you and and and, and dive into your business? I said I Google well. <laughs> I know but, that. <laughs> Janine but, uh, of course, we have a website, which uh, new website under construction. So please forgive me for any shortcomings of the existing one, but it's being updated and optimized as I'm being. Hey, told. There you go. That's right. Uh, ParavionLTD.com. And then uh, through a more familiar channel, if someone actually directly wants to reach out to me, I, of course, have a profile on LinkedIn, and they can always reach, call the company at Absolutely. 713-681-0075. Well, Janine, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I, I love what you've learned from the industry and how it's evolved. It's such a fascinating story, and I'm excited to see you guys grow and look forward to uh, reconnecting um, and, and hearing about your success. Well, thank you again. Great opportunity. Really appreciate it. And I hope your listening audience enjoys it. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via the Apple iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the Contender Cast, connect with us at contenderbrands.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender. Contender.